the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning, I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. I keep women connected on air with information and conversation. I also keep men connected as well. But this morning, I have three guests. Uh, My first guest is ready to go. All women. First guest is the author of Unstoppable in Stilettos, A Girl's Guide to Living Tall in a Small World. And she's an author, obviously, Lauren Rotolo. She's also director of entertainment promotions at Hearst Magazine in New York City, where she is responsible for developing strategic key partnerships with TV and cable networks, music labels, movie studios, very exciting job, at least to me it seems like a very exciting job coming as a social worker. Um, welcome to the show. Nice to have you on the show this morning, Lauren. Good morning to you. Nice to have you as well. Well, it's very cool. Un- you're the title of your book, Unstoppable in Stilettos. <laughs> you are four feet tall, four feet two inches tall, I guess. Four foot two. Yes, four I need two. those two extra inches. Uh, and you have you're, you've been described as unflappable, and you've written this book because you were, I guess, di- diagnosed and born with a genetic disorder that caused you to be very small, and many people in your situation view themselves as disabled, they're in a wheelchair, not so with you, not only not so with you, totally the opposite, you've chosen a totally different path. So before I start interviewing you, I just want to say, I'm, a sh- I'm pretty short myself. I started out as 5'1", but as I get older, I'm shrinking, and I'm now down to about 5 feet. <laughs> that <laughs> so happens. I'm I hear thinking, that oh, happens. Boy, you are I hope that doesn't happen to me, though. Show. You can go to laurenrutolo.com as well. Um, okay, so Lauren, tell us about the book, and obviously you're born with this genetic disorder that you're, you're really short. Um, and uh, you, but have parents who treat you as like you're normal. I'm putting normal in quotes, siblings. Let's start with that and uh, start with your story. Sure. So at nine months old, I was uh, diagnosed with a disease that's called McCune-Albright syndrome, which affects your endocrine and your skeletal system. And the way that I was diagnosed is that I, I got my period. And my mother immediately, my mother and my father immediately took me to the doctor. They didn't understand, so they diagnosed me with precocious puberty. Wait, so you got your period? How old were you? Which does sometimes happen. And um, it's really, from my understanding, it's an easy fix because this does happen to to women. But um, about a year later, I broke my femur bone just just while I was, like, beginning to walk. And the combination of the two, they diagnosed me with McCune-Albright syndrome, like I said before, it affects your endocrine, which means that my pituitary gland and my ovaries work independently, which is why I got precocious puberty. So, and, um, how, and then from, how old you were? 
I'm sorry, what? How old you were when you got your period? Nine months old. Nine months old. Not yes. that's terrifying. Or yeah, terrifying it really parents. was. I mean, obviously not for me because I don't remember, but for my parents it was really terrifying to them. And in the beginning, they, no one wanted to believe it. The doctors didn't believe it. And, and they finally did testing, and yes, I was getting my period. You know, I was starting to develop. You know, they had to really just shut down my entire endocrine system at that point, of which they did. Right, so and, um, yeah, go on. Yes. Oh, so, so as I was saying, you know, so they shut it down. Um, you know, a few years later, I kept on just breaking bones and breaking bones. And basically what, I, what would happen is that I would break my femur and I would be in a body cast. And by the time I was eight years old, I was in eight body casts from, you know, from my chest down. And, you know, it was definitely a tough life growing up, but actually at the age of five years old, I made a decision that I was never going to be in a wheelchair, which is something that my doctors really wanted me to be in because doctors go down that safe route. And it's not a matter of them knowing what, you know, what they, like I said before, they want you to go down that safe route. But I and my parents knew that I really wasn't that kind of child at that point. So and how did you that know I was that? always I mean, a force of nature. It seems to me, it's, and you were so young to be able to say, I am not going to listen to my doctors. I am not going to be in a wheelchair. I am not going to be labeled as a person with a disability. Uh, and by the way, we didn't actually give the statistic. I mean, you're only like one in 100,000 or one in one million people who suffer from this disorder or have. That is correct. So uh, there isn't a lot of kind of, it would seem to me, information in terms of how people deal with it. Um, what made you, what was in, because anyone who's listening to this say, well, how did you decide that? What, what, where did your strength come from or where did your parents' strength come from to be able to make that decision? I'm not going to be in a wheelchair. I mean, I think that the decision just really comes from within and that they just wanted to give me, you know, and I'll say in quotes like you did in the beginning of the show, this normal lifestyle. And at that point I was, yes, I was breaking bones, but I was still, you know, walking and sometimes I had to walk with a wheelchair, I mean, walk with a walker. But, you know, I was always this very determined kid. I mean, as a matter of fact, as a year uh, at 11 months old, my mother started potty training me, you know, because I tore off my diaper. I didn't want to wear it anymore. So, you know, like all these things, I was just determined at such a young age to do what I wanted to do. What was the and most difficult really, thing for it, you it, at that age? It was like, almost that, a natural instinct. It would seem to me there'd be a lot of kids who, you know, they're not particularly empathetic at that age, children. They can be mean. They can be nasty. Did any? Did you have to deal with that kind of stuff, or or was were there people who there who obviously your parents are supportive, but other people outside people? I mean, there were definitely some outside people. The kids never. Um, as a matter of fact, I was always like one of the most popular kids in school. I always had a million friends because I didn't view myself as different, and therefore they didn't view me as different. And I think that that's really something that, you know, that I come across in the book and I really discuss is that if you don't view yourself as different, really the world is not going to because it's this perceived personality that you're putting out there into the world. Yeah. So and, you- and it was just really, you know, that, that portion, you know, making friends and doing all that, that, that came easy. You know, they were definitely other people and definitely adults and my parents, you know, the friends 
the parents of my friends that wanted to disable me, I'll say. So what do you focus on in the book specifically? Is it a how-to book for, uh, well, for short people? That would be me as well. Or is it really more a general kind of thing for, for individuals who may perceive themselves as different? Because you obviously say, you, you know, you send out those vibes, I'm self-confident, I can do what I, you know, whatever I set out to do, and then you get that back in your environment. Yeah, I mean, it's really, the book is a bunch of stories of my, of my life and the lessons that I've learned through each story and then tips on how, uh, and then my personal tips on how to be a better person and how to be confident. And you are in a business, I have to say, not only did you, you're successful and you're out there and you have this great job, but you're in a, you're in a business where everybody, you know, looking good, you know, being successful, getting to the top, I mean, you are, you know, swimming with the big fish. <laughs> <laughs> I guess sometimes I do swim with the big fish, even though I'm always that little fish. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, it's 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 just it was a passion of mine from a little girl. I talk about how I originally thought that I was going to be this like pop star and I wanted to be a singer, and how I really went down that route. And I'm really just you know ultimately I'm not not a great singer. So I took my passion for entertainment and I just really structured it into something that I was capable of doing. And so and now I'm the director of entertainment. Extremely talented, extremely bright. And even the book is, it's, I guess, been described as Lauren's lessons. Teach me a lesson. I'm five feet tall, and I do, and as I'm shrinking, I'm getting high. I'm not, I haven't gotten to stilettos yet because I'm not sure I could walk in them, but I am getting higher and higher those wedgie shoes. And <laughs> recently I went with my boyfriend to, um, to Amsterdam. And you know that the to me, people in Holland are the tallest people in the world? They are the tallest people. Yeah, men and women. I am standing at this party. The men were six feet four, and I'm looking up, and I'm, I'm going to ask you this as a piece of advice because we don't have a lot more time left, but how do I make myself heard and feel tall? You know, when I'm standing, look, always looking up at people, and they're always looking down at me, so that kind of sets up a dynamic that I don't like. Well, I think first and foremost you could – you know, you could kind of make a joke out of it, just be like, oh, my God, you know, maybe we should sit down so we're equal. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's just a matter of, yes, you, you might have to be a little bit louder if you're going to be in that situation, but just have fun with it. Um, I mean, I, I'm always, you know, looking, <laughs> looking up. I'm always upward facing. And, you know, if I'm going to be in a crowd like that, then I'll just be, like, I think that they are probably just as uncomfortable as you. Sometimes they, it's an advantage I mean, because they're shorter and you're when you go foot, to a you know, party or you go with thing. a group of people. Because you can kind of hide. People can't see you right away, and you can kind of decide where you want to go, who you want to talk to. Uh-huh. Uh, the boy, my boyfriend is six foot four, and so when he walks into a room, everybody sees him. His, his, you know, his presence is known, so he, right. he, he can't hide. Right, but I mean, look at you, you know, like he picked, he picked you, you're, you're little. <laughs> so, yeah, well, I so do what you so, said, Lauren. Uh, he sits in a chair and I stand up and we're both the same, we're, you know, now we're the same height. Exactly. So yeah. that's, you know, that's what I do too. I'm like, oh, come on, let's sit down so we can talk face to face. So tell us, we're going to, we can go, I want to mention the website again because we can go to Lauren Rutolo. I better spell your last name. It's R-U-O-T-O-L-O dot com. 
uh, obviously to learn are unstoppable in stilettos, right? Uh-huh. That's another one. Yeah, so, so uh, my main website is laurenrotolo.com where you can read a blog, you can see some videos of me, some photos of me with my friends and my family. And uh, otherwise, you can buy the book at Borders or Barnes & Noble or, of course, Amazon. Yeah. What's been the response to the book? Do you get response from short people and tall people? I get response from everyone. It's really, ha- you know, I obviously don't discriminate between short and tall, but um, it's just I have gotten such amazing feedback. As a matter of fact, there's this woman, Kathy, that has now read the book three times. She told me on Facebook every time she needs to feel a little optimistic, she she goes down and she reads the book. It's it's an easy read. It's funny. It's fun. Overall, when you're done reading it, you're just going to have this great feeling about yourself and that you can, you know, just try to conquer the world. Lauren's Lessons, Navigating Social Pressures, Avoiding the Label Game. You have everything in there. So uh, thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Well, thank you. This has been wonderful. Yeah, I've learned a lot from you. Besides the book, thanks so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Coming up next, we have two guests, but coming up in this next 15 minutes, uh, actually for the next half hour, we have half an hour with this guest, uh, is the author Sheila Z. Sterling. Uh, she's a Ph.D., and she's written a book called Love and Illusion. You could be dating or married to a social sociopath without even knowing it. So it's really scary stuff. I don't know how many of you have thought, well, this relationship isn't working and it's really not working well and this guy really doesn't care about me and yet you stay stuck in the relationship. Well, there are some relationships that are go beyond the normal, go way beyond the normal dating pattern. And these are social sociopaths. Sheila Z. Sterling, she herself was involved in that relationship for three years so don't go away i'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone we'll be back in a minute news opinion your voice counts call toll free 1-866-472-5787 1-866-472-5787 voiceamerica.com do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern, for the Money Answers Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The daytime discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com. And now he's taking the talk to the airwaves of the Voice America Variety Channel. He'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnist. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show. Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. 
You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone, keeping women connected on air with information and conversation, and we also keep men connected as well. Um, as promised, this is my second guest, Dr. Sheila Z. Sterling. She's a Ph.D., she's an author, and she's a, a relationship counselor. Uh, her new book is called Love and Illusion. You could be dating or married to a social sociopath without even knowing it. Uh, apparently, one in every 25 adults in this country are acting out this appalling behavior. Uh, and the, the appalling behavior involves acting with no conscience, no guilt, no remorse, no regard for anybody's feelings other than their own. But these people can be, and I guess there are more men, one in th- uh, three times more men who have this behavior, this social sociopathic behavior. Uh, but they're very charming, very charming and uh, flirtatious, and they draw you in. And, um, well, before I go on, I want to introduce Sheila Sterling. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Well, thank you so much, and good morning to you. I'm, I'm thrilled to be on the show. Well, this is a topic, and let me say that I know, and I think I probably was at one time involved in a relationship that fits the, the description of this social sociopath as well as several of my friends. So maybe it's more common than we think. But you yourself were involved in a three-year relationship with a social, social sociopath. Um, so I'm making a, the assumption that's one of the motivations for writing this book. Yeah, um, yes, he actually was a catalyst and the inspiration for the book because it was so appalling. I stayed in the relationship about a year and a half too long because the scientist to me kicked in and I began studying the behavior pattern because it was so unbelievable to me. But, um, and I actually knew this person for five years. We were friends for two years. And as long as you stay on the outside, in the book I have a thing called the Ring of Fire. These people are the most charming people, the most helpful, the most wonderful. And if you keep your distance, that's okay. It's when you get into a closer relationship that it, it triggers sort of this behavior. <laughs> well, let's describe, Sheila, the behavior for those who really aren't familiar with what a sociopath is, because you split it up into two different categories. We have the social sociopath, but then you also talk about the sociopath, the typical one that we know, the murderer, the uh, the rapist, uh, the, the one that's kind of has been diagnosed or is diagnosed as a psychopath. So what's the difference? Well, the difference is, and by the way, that's a, that's a phrase I coined. I made up social sociopath because I noticed when we hear the word sociopath, everybody immediately relates to uh, a Jeffrey Dahmer or Silence of the Lambs and you know things that go on that uh, Vandersloot, who recently uh, in Sweden killed uh, a young lady because she went on the Internet and he thought she was getting into his business. But um, the main difference is there is a boundary. Uh, people, the underlying, uh, the underlying account for this is rage. In both cases, however, what I call the pure sociopath has blurred or completely stepped over the boundary. In other words, these people will act out violently at the drop of a hat. The social sociopath which about, I would say, 80% of people walking around with this are social sociopaths. They, are, they know to stay within the law. 
their game is sort of predetermined. They're very uh, cunning and very sociable, but they know there's no law for breaking hearts. There's no law for breaking homes or wreaking havoc. They'll maintain a secret life. Sometimes they'll maintain seven, eight, or even more relationships at one. Uh, lying to each one. Pathological lying is one of the one of the uh, traits. So, Sheila, how do we, because you were involved in, that's one of the stories. You have, you know, different stories, other people's stories who were involved with social sociopaths, but you're the number one story. And so I guess my question is, first of all, how, just as a layperson, do you recognize them? As a woman, let's say, you're you're dating, how do you know? I mean, here this person is is, is charming, is, as you say, maybe good-looking. They... um, they attach themselves to you. Um, how does one stay, you know, I guess make a diagnosis so that you don't get involved with someone like that? Yeah, that's one of the reasons I wrote the book because it's very difficult. The red flags are a lot of them are very hidden that don't come out till way later. But one of them, uh, well, a few of them, one of them is if you're dating somebody or if you've been going out with somebody, has this person invited you over to their home? In other words, do they always come to your home? They're comfortable. Maybe you're seeing each other every day. You're great friends. But when it comes time to go to their house, it's always an excuse. Oh, well, it's a mess, or we'll go later. When my social sociopath even moved in with me after we dated for over a year, uh, you know, he kept saying, oh, I left clothes in my old place. I'd say, well, let's go get them. And he'd say, no, 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 we'll, we'll do it some other time, and it never happened. So, uh, because what happens is they play multiple games. And now my thought is, and my thought was then, the reason that you aren't invited into their house is they may actually be playing this game with somebody else as well. So it's important to really see how somebody you're dating and someone you're friends with, if you're getting into an intimate relationship with them, how do they live? Do they have friends? And do they have hobbies other than just being... The, the person who tells the greatest story at the bar or the life of but the party. But one of the things I noticed from your story, Sheila, is even when you became suspicious of this relationship um, with uh, it, it, Stephen, um, you still stayed in the relationship. You know, you were suspect. You did know that he had other girlfriends. You did know that he was he was working in Canada and he was you were getting all these phone bills from that he had with lots of women and text messages and that kind of stuff. But something kept you connected to this kind of a personality. And I assume that, and you're a psychologist, that that's not unique. Uh, no, that isn't unique. Uh, for me, uh, a lot of women stay in for different reasons. Uh, it could be financial. It could be, it's definitely not emotional. But it's so unbelievable most women, uh, when things like this start to happen, we sort of turn on ourselves and say, what did I do? How, you know, what did I do wrong? And in the book it says, stop right there. You did nothing wrong. It's not about you. For me personally, I stayed in the relationship. Uh, Stephen was gone quite a bit. And so it became sort of easier for me uh, to, to study this. I began uh, realizing that this kind of dark behavior needed to have some light shed on it. And so I began really studying it, and I would sort of bait him, as it says in the book. You know, I would say things like, oh, it must be wonderful to not have to spend $300 on a dinner whining and dining women anymore. 
and he would say, "Oh yes, it's I, it's great. I haven't done that in years since we've been since we met." Well, but here I had bills, <laughs> bills that were like two and three times a week. Well, so you were doing research on the side. Yes, <laughs> you, had I was, a, you had a I was, backstory there too, right? I mean, you're like, as you say, kind of trying to uh, you're quizzing him, and he's not passing the test. Right. Well, I wanted, I had to really make sure to for myself and for research that I mean, almost every word out of his mouth was just not true. So, I mean, and that is one of the things, a pathological slide, and, and they don't take responsibility. They will not take responsibility. If you, uh, they don't take responsibility for their actions. So in my case, and I even say in the book, yes, I myself became a little twisted up into this relationship and into this behavior, and I admit it. It took a lot. I had to, I had to really reinforce myself and back myself away and say, this is really happening. It's like, it's so unbelievable. I mean, some people stay just because it's so hard to phantom that it's real. Do you think, Sheila, that people stay in, or women stay in this relationship because on some level, and it creates a lot of chaos, obviously, this kind of a relationship, there's some excitement, there's that adrenaline, because these kinds of people, and I've met them, I've met these men, are very exciting. They're fun. You know, they're, they're not boring. And so that part of it is very engaging. Yes, they're not. They are very engaging, and you know there is very much truth in what you say. Yeah, because they are exciting, and because it come, it may come in spurts. It may not be. They may seem on the surface to be kind and and considerate, but the truth is, they have. If you came with to them with a problem, there is no feeling there. There's no emotion, and when they're ready to make the switch, it's the blizzard. <laughs> I call it the blizzard <laughs> because there is no feeling or emotion. But I think a lot of women, women do stay, and maybe that was a small part myself. It was exciting. We went places on the surface. Everything seemed fine. People used to say, you are the most perfect couple. And people used to come to me and say, oh, Sheila, he loves you so much, it looks like he could eat you up. And in my mind, I was saying, you have no idea how truthful that statement could really be. Yeah, that's exactly what he was doing, eating you up. That's right. But now, had Stephen been married for, I, I thought that, I, that he had six ex-wives? Uh, Stephen was married, had six wives, and that, that was a huge red flag for me that I ignored because I have, I have been single since probably 1980. And I ignored a lot of science myself, even though clinically, <laughs> clinically I knew it was wrong. But it, because of what was said in our friendship, because of how devastated he said that he was from the relationship that he actually left a 14-year marriage uh, for another woman, and then something happened within, you know, six, seven months, uh, I thought, well, I see, I didn't realize, I didn't realize the syndrome at that point. At that point, I just thought, well... You know how we all go through things, and when you become so devastated, you you understand, you gain a greater understanding of relationships, and you do certain things you're not going to do again. So I discounted, I discounted the fact that he was married six times. Yeah, it's and, almost. I mean, I was going to say denial. I mean, it's just absolutely wanting to deny, just yes. deny the situation. I guess. Um, and one of the other topics that you approach in the book is your sexual relationship with him. There was an, an element to that, too, of, of uh, experiencing some of his rage and his anger. 
Yes, actually, that that is also can be a red flag. Not always, but it can be if uh, the person is sort of uh, uh, forceful, likes to take a very strong, uh, dominant stand. Like I, one of the things in the book, I said, you know, he's like take me and put me up against the wall like a passionate movie and, you know, kiss me passionately. Well, I kind of like that. But the underlying thing was this was a little bit of rage. And, yes, if they are can be rough in the bedroom, it is a way that they can take out some of their rage at a time unconsciously is what they're doing. It, it, it seems to me it's also about, it's about control, needing to, needing to at least feel this social sociopath that he or she, in this case he, controls the situation, that, oh, absolutely. that they are in control. We're going to take a short break right now, and uh, Sheila's going to stay with us, because when we come back, I have a question. I want to, are there certain women, you don't answer it now, we'll wait till we come back, but who these social, social sociopaths sort of know their mark, there's a mark, there's something that vibes that, that particular women send out, there's a certain vulnerability. Um, that maybe they know who they can do it to. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com, World Talk Radio. Dr. Sheila Z. Sterling is my guest today, Ph.D. and author of Love and Illusion. We'll be back in a minute. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. If you want to get ahead, you have to stand out from the crowd, the clutter, and the competition. Are you? Tune in each week for Standing Out with Lauren Saunier. Lauren and her guests have the secrets that can help you and your business get noticed, get attention, and achieve your desired results no matter where you're starting from. Standing Out with Lauren Saunier, live every Friday at 12 noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Get ready to be a marketing machine. Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the Stars of PR with Cindy Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone, keeping women connected on air with information and conversation. Uh, my guest this morning is Sheila Z. Sterling, Ph.D., author of Love and Illusion, You Could Be Dating or Married to a Social Sociopath Without Even Knowing It. So uh, before we took the break, I said to you, Sheila, social, social sociopath, um, do, these in, do these men, I'm going to stick to men, do they know or do they have a sense 
who they can do it to, like who, what women they're going to be able to connect to and who they can manipulate and who uh, they can control? Uh, do they have a sense about that? Well, it, it, it's mostly about the game. Now, in my case, and it could be different for others, but in my case, um, if you look at all of the different wives that Stephen has, they were successful women. These were pretty, you know, good-looking women on the outside, but they were also uh, on the inside. They were nurturing. They had great careers, uh, you know, earnings. They were respected in the community. I did some research on that and found that there were similarities in all these other people or the ones that I could get information on. So the answer is yes. They will, they will uh, go for what works for them. Now, it could be that uh, the success end is important to them because they want to have, they want to be able to use a person either for their money, their beautiful home, or their social status. And so, you know, that's just, that's one of the quiet things that they'll go, it's a game and it's a challenge. And and if you're hard to get to, if you're someone that is uh, respected in the community and private and, you know, carries some of these traits, that is like a huge big carrot. Sheila, you just described something. I mean, it's just a a real... I don't know if I would call it an epiphany, but I have a, a actually, I do have a, a girlfriend in a marriage who is going through d- just what you've described in your book and married to what I think is a social sociopath. And this is one of the things she keeps saying to me is, I, I feel weak, I feel ashamed, look what's happened to me, look what's happening to me. And yet I see her, she's exactly the kind of person that you described. She's successful, she's well, actually well-to-do, she has all of these great uh, attributes. And now, as you're describing this sociopath, I guess this person does need to be with someone who is strong, who does have a lot to offer so they can take from that person. They really don't want to be with a weak person. And, of course, I say to her, if you can stay with this guy for this long, you have to be pretty strong. Well, yeah, so what happens is I call this behavior dismantling because even, I mean, the strongest of women who have, you know, we've worked to be the best we can be and you've done everything in parentheses right. Uh, You're careful what you do. You're well-respected. You live an integritous life and in truth. This is a huge target. And what's really important for all of us to understand is this is not about you. You need to emotionally detach yourself from what is happening and take a bird's-eye view and realize that you are being brought down one step at a time. And when the devastation is complete, this person will turn around and walk away without a second thought and go on to the next. So it's very important that you stand up and that you realize that you are the one that is respected. You are the one that is... Uh, you know, in the in the place that you brought yourself to be. So, how difficult is it to extricate yourself from that kind of a relationship? Because you've got this, you know, charming guy, you know, grandiose, always creating these exciting situations, even if there's chaos associated with it. How do you break away? It's extremely difficult. It's extremely difficult. And as it says in the book, Stephen has actually maintained relationships with ex-wives, even though they're married to other people. So it is very difficult to break away, but it's something that each and every one of us, you deserve, at the end of the book it says, you know, you deserve to be happy, to live in joy. 
So it, you, I, for me, I did it a little at a time. Like I said, I stayed in for about a year, so uh, too long. But I, what I did was I worked on myself. I used my own uh, methods and uh, my own inner intelligence on myself. So each day, each week, I would pull myself a, away a little more. And that was one of the reasons I did the, I did the testing to see if, um, you know, he was continually uh, untruthing. <laughs> so in other words, you're saying give yourself a break. I mean, you're not going to be able, you've been in this relationship, in your case, three years, some people even much longer may have children with them, you have a connection with, sometimes with their families. And so you, it, it takes time. And you kind of, as you say, work on yourself, get yourself stronger, and then you, you systematically kind of, Break away, yeah, and, uh, yeah, and break away. And I mean, and the choice is yours. I mean, if this is something that you can live with, and you you have a sort of a separate life, some women choose to stay. Um, but it is very dismantling, and sooner or later, and, and in my personal opinion, because if you don't pass the stuff back, you pass it on, and therefore children become huge at risk when living in the same household with someone who carries these traits. Because what is the cause it. of this? Now, I know uh, very often, I mean, you're a psychologist, I'm a social worker, you go back to mom. <laughs> Something, some relationship with the mother, is, it, is that it? Or is it some kind of chemical well, imbalance that causes people to be, or men to behave this way? Where does it come from? Well, all of the above. There are some scientists that say it's, uh, it's multi-generational. There are some scientists say that, yes, it is chemical. Myself, personally, I believe it comes from two, one of two things or both. One, a mother who you've never been able to get an emotional attachment with. And that comes in the first two years of life. So a woman who has a career is career-driven and is sort of pulled away from the family a little bit. Um, the, the children at a very young age, what happens is when they don't have that, it's so important, that attachment to the mother, they develop unconsciously this mechanism of sort of becoming a life outside themselves. It's the only way to protect themselves from complete devastation as an infant unconsciously and also an overbearing father, uh, a father who has uh, sort of taken the a pseudo-dominant role and almost is aggressive, almost against a male child, even a very young child. So unconsciously, this stuff all turns into rage. And it is, rage is the underlying factor, the undealt with issues in both social sociopaths and the, what I call the pure sociopath. And I actually, I have an all day workshop that we actually, we go back and do the work. So, <laughs> uh, that, but you have to want to get after it. And here's the challenge. Most Where are your workshops? Because we have our listeners are from all over the country, actually the world, because we're on the net. So let's say if one is recognizing some of these traits, maybe in themselves, some of the men or women realizing they're involved in this kind of a relationship, and they say, oh, I'd like to go to one of Sheila's, Dr. Sterling's workshops, where can they go? Well, they can, I have a, a website called True Life-Solutions, and there actually is a link in the Love and Illusion website. And uh, January 30th is my next one. It's a seven-hour all-day intensive. The next one's going to be in Las Vegas, Nevada, which is my hometown where I live. And um, it, it, because it's important, this all lies within. So it's really a journey within um, to be able to 
understand and unravel how these things are happening. So, um, Sheila, Dr. Sterling, yeah. would tell me, what, if at all, is there any possibility, I mean, because you talk about women, you have to work on yourself if you want to extricate yourself from a relationship with a social sociopath, but the social sociopath themselves, is there any way for them to be cured or to manage their behavior? I don't know how you describe it, but is, can you actually get into therapy and, um, and, and be cured of this kind of behavior? Well, there's the big challenge because uh, most people who carry this uh, behavior, they also believe from the very core, and they've had this is a defense mechanism that they have built, but they believe that they are superior beings. And so what, they're just playing multiple games with people because they're superior. Now, there's the challenge. Getting somebody who feels they're superior to everybody, if they go into therapy, they're just playing with a psychologist. They're generally very intelligent people, and they're just playing with them. So I'm not going to say it's impossible because there are people that can recognize this in themselves and say, wow, I want to do something. You know, I know that I've got a good life. I know that I've got it great here. And, and see that it's about them and want to do something about the behavior. I'm not going to say it can't happen. I'm going to say that it's seldom that it happens only because, uh, I mean, if they're, if they're the right ones and everybody else is wrong, because they'll turn everything around and make it your fault. So if including the therapist. So if you're having if you have somebody sitting there in therapy in therapy diagnosed with this social sociopath, you say one thing that they view as a challenge. The therapist, they're out of there. Uh, yeah, that's true because they believe that they're more. When you start to get close to that syndrome, and actually that's one of the things that triggers it. When you begin to get close enough that they really begin to feel, what happens is this underlying rage starts to bubble up. And it, you know, it brings great fear. And rather than <clears throat> barrel through it and get after it, which some people do, but the course of least resistance is do what works for them. I mean, so if where got, do we go from here? We have a couple minutes left. Left. What would be your suggestion besides obviously going to your workshops because you're going to learn a lot and reading your book, right. Love and Illusion? You could be dating or married to a social sociopath without even knowing it author Sheila Z. Sterling, leave us with something that uh, anyone who's listening who says it has this aha experience, I have to do something, what should they do right now? Uh, they should love themselves enough to say enough. Love themselves to start picking up the pieces, put their life together, even, even in the midst of the relationship, and begin to pull away and get free from the spell you have to break the spell. Great advice. And it's been a thank you so much for being on the show. It's oh, really been you. enlightening. My, yeah. And I recommend that listeners get your book, loveandillusion.com. Yep. <laughs> and go to your website. Thanks so much. Coming up next is Melissa Orloff. She is author, author of The ADHD Effect on Marriage. We're talking about relationships this whole hour, I guess, which is, that's a good thing. I'm a social worker. So uh, don't go away. I'm your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com, World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! 
If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Emotional intelligence has been documented to be the most important skill for a leader to move up in an organization. Leaders Playbook will unpack what emotional intelligence is, why it is important, and how you can raise your emotional intelligence for yourself, your direct reports, and your team. Join Dr. Relly Nadler every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern to the Leaders Playbook on the Voice America Business Channel. Your success, your success could depend on it. Women in business today face many challenges in advancing their careers and reaching their goals. There are corporate executives, entrepreneurs, and business owners that have made their mark in business. Now you can learn their secrets and tips. Listen to Women Mean Business as your host, Bonnie Marcus, explores how to thrive in the business environment, navigate the workplace, and climb the corporate ladder. Listen live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel and effectively promote yourself today. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone, keeping women connected on air with information and conversation, and also keeping men connected as well. Uh, my last guest coming up in this hour is Melissa Orloff. She is a relationship expert and author of The ADHD Effect on Marriage. And for those of you who don't know what ADHD is, you will find out obviously from Melissa, but uh, the clinical name is Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. So we're going to find out from Melissa exactly what give us a definition of what it is. And, uh, and if you are a person who suffers from it um, or you are married to someone who suffers from it, what kind of effect does this have on your relationship? Welcome to the show, Melissa. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you so much. ADHD, I guess I defined it. I, well, I didn't define it. I just named it. So tell us, what is a, first, what is ADHD? Well, um, first of all, it is, if you want to think of it this way, a little bit misnamed. It's not just attention deficit. It's actually attention dysregulation. Um, and so what that means is that uh, people who have ADHD are, can be very distracted, and that's one of the ma- major symptoms of ADHD is chronic distraction, uh, but they can also sort of hyper-focus at times, though they don't have a whole lot of control over when that happens. Uh, but ADHD uh, is, is a, an adult with ADHD is very distracted. They'll have lots of difficulty organizing tasks, um, might frequently lose things. Um, if they have the H or the hyperactivity part, which many people don't, uh, they might feel very restless. These are the people whose feet are always going and who are talking a lot, and et cetera. So, Melissa, how common is this in the United States? How many people suffer from this? Well, it's about 5% of the adult population, so um, that's millions of people have it. And unfortunately, most of the adults who have it um, don't know that they have it. It's uh, mostly undiagnosed, actually. Uh, But they do know that they are having problems uh, lots of times, either in work or in their relationships or whatever, and and uh, they know that they don't feel quite like other folks. So, so what about? I know one of the symptom, one of the behavioral symptoms of ADHD 
PTSD is, uh, and an adult, for instance, someone who has difficulty, as you said, focusing, maybe they go from job to job. I have, uh, I always bring up my friends because I have lots of friends who suffer from all these diseases and conditions that I talk about on the show, but one of my friends has a son, brilliant, brilliant young man, 700s on his college boards, but now is 35 years old, can't hold a job, can't, couldn't graduate from college. Um, all of his, you know, what you would think would be his attributes, he just doesn't function at the level he should because he suffer. He just can't, as you say, he can't focus, he can't concentrate, he can't stay in anything long enough to finish it. No, it's true, and it really can impact. It doesn't, you know, there are some very successful people who have ADHD, but there are also people where it really gets in the way um, in uh, the workplace and in others. Uh, my area of expertise has been in relationships where it frequently gets in the way. Um, but, you know, being having great problems with distraction and not being able to organize things well and not thinking very hierarchically really can get in your way in the workplace. So you... You not only are an expert in the field, but you, this is your own personal experience. So let's, because, you know, we don't have that much time. I want to hear about your experience, because your husband has it, and, and obviously. And my daughter expect- does, too. And what? And my daughter does as well, I'm sorry. And your daughter does as well. Okay, so it's a family. Is it hereditary? It is hereditary. It's highly hereditary. And, in fact, if you have a child with ADHD, chances are very good that one or both parents has it. That's one way people figure out. They start reading about it and they say, wow, this sounds really familiar. (laughs) So when did you start thinking about it for yourself? When did you say, you know, my husband, there's something wrong here. I mean, you talk about you have a relationship and, you know, sometimes you're not sure. Maybe it's my fault. Things aren't going well. Whose fault is it? And we always, you know, know who are you going to blame? But at some point you must have said, well, wait, there's something more here than just a, a normal kind of relationship balance back and forth trying to figure out our problems. Right, and we tried a lot of different things. It is a, it is a little hard because you think, gee, if I just try harder or if I do something differently, things will change. And, in fact, if you don't know about the ADHD, things don't change because the ADD symptoms introduce these sort of repetitive things like distraction and, and not connecting with each other and, and not feeling like you're really partner, in a partnership, um, and that's a problem. For us, it was the very typical thing. We have a daughter. She was diagnosed in elementary school. Um, we didn't put two and two together right away, but, um, but uh, we did figure out about it later. And uh, as we started to learn about it, you know, you, you read those symptoms and say, wow, um, this is very familiar. And it was a little bit masked in our case. My husband's very successful. He's one of these people who hasn't had problems at all in the work arena, just in the relationship arena. So what was the big, what would you say was the biggest challenge to you? Or when did you actually say, you know, I, there's something wrong here um, because there's obviously something must have stood out that was. Well, you know, what stood out was that we should have been able to do better and we couldn't. And I was becoming very angry. I was nagging a lot. Um, You know, it was sort of a parent-child relationship where I was sort of in charge and he was supposed to sort of go off and do things. And that's very typical of these relationships. The non-ADD partner sort of takes on that role. Um, And we didn't like it. Uh, And so we tried a lot of different things. We did a lot of experimenting. That didn't seem to work. Finally, we just said there's a different approach. There's a different way to do this. Um, And it's related to the ADHD itself. Um, So when you say you took on parent and he was the child, and that's obviously not a healthy relationship. It should be an equal 
relationship, adult relationship in a marriage, right. um, and you were aware of that, like what kinds of things? He wouldn't do chores around the house. He wouldn't follow through with the kids. What was he specifically not doing? Because here's a guy who's successful at work but not at home. Right, and he was doing all of the above, plus he was so distracted all the time that he also wasn't paying any attention to me. I was very lonely and very angry, and that's quite typical of these relationships. The distraction symptom gets in the way. So you say, can you go do X? And he says, sure, I'll be happy to do that. And then he gets distracted, and he goes off. And you misinterpret that as his not doing it as, well, gee, he doesn't care about me, or he doesn't care about our family enough to follow through on this stuff. And what's really happening is he cares, but he's distracted. So in other words, as the spouse or the partner, you start personalizing it. If he really cared, he would do the laundry or he would take out the garbage. Although, you know, you do hear that in in relationships where one doesn't suffer from ADHD. So it must be a matter, what, of degree? It is exactly a matter of degree. I used to joke, but it really wasn't a joke. You know, I called him consistently inconsistent. I, I just simply could not rely on him, and it wasn't, you know, he had undiagnosed ADHD, and so, you know, the reason I couldn't rely on him was because he was so distracted all the time, and uh, and he was off doing things, other things. He wanted to help out. It wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't intentional at all, and I was very unhappy, and the more unhappy I got, the angrier I got, and, of course, as soon as I got angry and he didn't understand it, then uh, then the relationship falls apart. The divorce rate and the dysfunction rate for these marriages is very high. It's almost double um, the, the typical population. I would predict that most marriages, and I'm, this is a statistic, I don't have the statistics, so I'm making this up, probably couples don't stay together with this kind of a, 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 an emotional uh, relationship or attachment. That well, and that's, what I, that's why I wrote the book, because uh, it, you know, it doesn't have to be that way. Um, once you know what the patterns are that the ADHD introduces into the relationship, then you can change those patterns. You can, you can do what both partners get involved in the patterns. It's not just the ADD partner. It's also the non-ADD partner. So you sort of simultaneously have each of them look at what their role is and make the changes that they need to make in terms of understanding each other, treating the ADHD, managing the anger and the frustration, interrelating with each other differently. It's all um, part of the process. But I've seen couple after couple who are on the verge of divorce turn it around once they figure out that the ADHD is the issue. So you're changing your patterns, you get counseling, therapy. What about medication? Talk to us about that just for a few couple a minute. We only have a couple minutes left. So is that part of the uh, treatment as well? It's a very good part of the treatment. It is not the only part of the treatment. It's not a magic pill. Um, there's an area of treatment. I, I say treatment has three legs. It's got a physical changes where you address the, the low levels of dopamine and other neurotransmitters in the brain. And so you're doing both. That I well. hate to cut you off because you okay. have so much to say. So, and we have 30 seconds left. So I want an ADHD um, effect on marriage. That's your book. And you can yep. go to Melissa Orloff. Go to her website. Um, love to have you on again because we have to continue with this conversation. I would love that too. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. you so much. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. Hope you had a great morning. Uh, have a good week, and uh, we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. 
Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.